You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can make the show just a little bit better, shoot me an email from hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To listen to my catalog of past episodes and hear new ones every week, look for Hidden History on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, and by the time you get to the end of this episode, you think I deserve it, I'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the show on your preferred platform. It really helps me grow the show's reach. If you really want, you can also follow me on Twitter, at LSA Tucci. Without further ado, let's get on to the show. This week, since I'm on a bit of a kick about critical media analysis, I'm going to take a look at a single song, and, well, a few things related to that song. In doing so, I'm going to try and paint a picture about the role of propaganda in American society and its influence on the creation of social preferences. This week, I'm going to be picking apart the motivations and meanings behind Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler's 1966 number one hit, The Ballad of the Green Berets. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 57, The Worst Song in the World. So, this episode exists largely as an attempt to answer the questions I posed at the end of last episode. To do that, I'm not going to have to talk about the ballad in terms of its musicality, but instead as a piece of media meant to elevate the public perception of the United States military, reinforcing its fetishistic views about the nobility and goals of military action, and as a piece of media which serves as a means for military recruitment. That means I'm going to have to talk about militainment, a rather snappy portmanteau of military and entertainment. And to do that, I need to start off this episode by talking about a pro-military video game series that started in the 2000s and has consistently produced content that is used as a recruitment tool. That's right, it's time to talk about America's Army. America's Army is a squad-based military shooter IP that's been around since 2002. And from that little bait-and-switch I did when I brought it up, you might have thought I was going to talk about Call of Duty. Now, by no means do I want to absolve Call of Duty of the blame of propagating the military entertainment complex. They've collaborated with the Pentagon on game design for years, and have directly made incredibly large contributions to the normalization of a militarized culture. But there is one very significant difference between Call of Duty and America's Army, and that's that the America's Army franchise is developed and published by the U.S. Army. So let's talk about games as a vehicle for changing social currents. Games as propaganda. In Robertson Allen's 2010 paper, The Unreal Enemy of America's Army, he compares the depiction of combatants in the America's Army franchise to those seen in similar games such as the Conflict Desert Storm series. What he finds is that 
many military shooters are products of their time, used to elevate and valorize specific conflicts, and as a result, have enemies based on real people or nationalities. America's army avoids this, choosing instead to make their enemy so vague as to represent anyone or anything. To quote Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, this enemy is no longer concrete and localizable, but now has become something fleeting and ungraspable, like a snake in the imperial paradise. The enemy is unknown and unseen and yet ever-present, something like a hostile aura. The face of the enemy appears in the haze of the future and serves to prop up legitimation where legitimation has declined. This enemy is in fact not merely elusive, but completely abstract. Here's what Allen himself has to say on the subject. The abstract enemy, what I call the unreal enemy of America's army, is not without historical precedent, and it has been prevalent in multiple disguises in American popular culture and military practices for decades. What this abstract enemy works to produce, though, is significantly shaped by a post-Fordist economic system characterized by an increase in the ambiguity between work time and leisure time, economic privatization and deregulation of formerly state-run industries and social service programs, shorter production cycles, and the centrality of new technologies in all of these processes. Essentially, what he's saying is that the framing of conflict within America's army doesn't indoctrinate you to hate anyone specific, instead choosing to sneakily bring you into the fold, to make you an insider member of a big, all-embracing club. It introduces people under the guise of an innocuous piece of entertainment to the mindset of the military. For America's army, the enemies aren't dated stand-ins that could pin the message of the game to a certain time. They're not Soviets or Viet Cong or Nazis. The enemy in America's army is the faceless, amorphous, ever-shifting idea of what it means to be an enemy of the United States. This is achieved through moving the narrative focus of the game itself. While games like Conflict Desert Storm and Call of Duty World at War are very much about who you're fighting against, America's army is very much about who you're fighting for. This de-emphasis of the enemy, paired with an increased focus on the power and hegemony of the United States Army, is done in accordance with the Army Game Project's 2002 stated goal for America's Army, which was, quote, to educate the American public about the U.S. Army and its career opportunities, high-tech involvement, values, and teamwork. Its sole purpose is to be an interactive recruitment pamphlet. The kind of insidious nature of this game is, I think, uh, made more obvious when you know that America's army has a number of modules that are actually used by the United States Army internally to train soldiers who are going off to kill people in real life. I don't know about you, but that to me is pretty revolting. The army has literally taken a training tool added some enjoyable game elements and released it to the public, hoping that impressionable young children would become enamored by how fun the army must be. America's army is just 
one of the many examples of the total proliferation of militarism into American life. We live in a martial state. Shows like Jack Ryan, Homeland, and 24, movies like American Sniper, Iron Man, Top Gun, and Independence Day, and video games like America's Army, Call of Duty, and Battlefield serve as vehicles to desensitize us to the militarism of American culture. We consume all of these things, and then when we go outside and see our local policemen wearing combat armor and toting military surplus, when we see ice rolling through New York City in armored cars with mounted turrets, when we hear that an American drone strike has killed another convoy of medics, or pregnant women, or the revelers at a wedding. We think nothing of it. This is normal. Thanks to years of thousands of strikes, a generation of children in the Middle East will grow up afraid of clear blue skies. The drones do not fly when it's gray. Personally, I can think of few things more horrifying and perfectly representative of the systematic violence and cruelty demanded by empire. But anyway, let's talk about the Ballad of the Green Berets. The ballad was released in 1966, but it was written in bits and pieces over the course of multiple years by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler, who was born in 1940 and joined the Air Force in 1958 at the age of 17. After his discharge in 1961, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and became a medic in the Green Berets, serving in Vietnam until he was wounded and sent back to the United States. In 1966, his new song finishes that year with the number one spot on the Billboard charts. In the very next year, he leaves the Army in hopes of pursuing a career in music and movies. He blows all of his royalty money and never produces another hit song. After a few unimpressive acting roles, he moves to Nashville and actually begins to write a series of successful pulp novels. Then in 1978, during a dispute over a woman, Sadler shoots a man, Lee Emery Bellamy, between the eyes and plants a gun in his vehicle. He's sentenced to four to five years in prison and ends up serving 28 days in a workhouse. After that, he moves to Guatemala City in 1984 and continues writing up until September 7, 1988, when he's shot in the head in the back of a taxi in what his family suspects was an assassination. He would never recover, emerging from the six-week-long coma that followed without the use of his limbs and with significant brain damage. On November 9, 1989, Barry Sadler dies of cardiac arrest at a VA hospital in Tennessee. Suffice it to say, this is not a happy story with a happy ending. This episode, though, is not necessarily intended to focus on the life and times of Barry Sadler. Rather, it's to reflect upon the nature of the media that he engaged with. The song itself, in the most annoying way possible, is somewhat of an earworm. I don't like the fact that I have occasionally noticed myself humming it while producing this episode. The message of Ballad of the Green Berets is twofold. 
that the Green Berets are an elite force that should be venerated by all Americans. And the most noble aspiration that one can have is to fight and die for the United States. I mean, the last verse of the song describes a Green Beret who has, quote, died for those oppressed. And his final message to his wife is him telling her to make sure that their son grows up to be a Green Beret. There's this really interesting but unsurprising conflation in the song of the special forces of the United States military with the pursuit of a noble and righteous goal. This becomes even more interesting when you realize that the Ballad of the Green Berets was released during the Vietnam War, meaning that the context of its lyrics are meant to portray American military action in Southeast Asia as a liberating war of good versus evil. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to realize that Vietnam was an unjust war that never should have happened. But if you didn't know that, if you were introduced to the song without any knowledge of when it was released, you wouldn't be able to tell. The focus of Ballad of the Green Berets is not on the enemy, it's on the Green Berets. They're vague fight is depicted as just. The enemy is no longer concrete and localizable, but has now become something fleeting and ungraspable, like a snake in the imperial paradise. The enemy is unknown and unseen, and yet ever-present, something like a hostile aura. The face of the enemy appears in the haze of the future, and serves to prop up legitimation where legitimation has declined. This enemy is, in fact, not merely elusive, but completely abstract. At the end of last week's episode, I asked what it meant to divorce support of the United States military from the militarily enforced policy goals of the United States government. The answer is that it means nothing. It is mental gymnastic, hypocrisy, a departure from reality itself. To support the military but not the policy is to protest the death penalty but support the executioner. It's to support the fingers but not the hand. I want you to listen and to tell me what this song is trying to make you feel. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Fighting soldiers from the sky, fearless men who jump and die, men who mean just what they say, the brave men of the Green Beret, silver wings upon their chest. These are men, America's best. One hundred men will test today, but only three. When the Green Beret 
trained to live off nature's land. Trained in combat, hand to hand. Men who fight by night and day. Courage take from the green beret. Silver wings upon their chest. These are men, America's best. One hundred men will test today, but only three win the green beret. Back at home, a young wife waits. Her green beret has met his fate. He has died for those oppressed, leaving her this last request. Put silver wings on my son's chest. Make him one of America's best. He'll be a man. They'll test one day. Have him win.